Hey, folks. Before this episode begins, I want to give a quick shout out to the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival. This is an organization that we're focusing on in the entire episode of the podcast today. Uh, but the PPC is led by William uh, Barber, Reverend William Barber, a great uh, leader in our country uh, for fighting for the working poor, the uh, poor and uh, low income uh, households of this nation. I'm excited about some of the things that they're pushing for. And I'll leave you with a quote uh, by William Barber. If America does not address what's happening with visionary social and economic policy, the health and well-being of this nation is at stake. What we need is a long-term economic policy that establishes justice, promotes the general welfare, and rejects decades of austerity and builds strong social programs that lift society from below. I cannot agree with that more. And if you'd like to find out more information, there's going to be a link in the description of this episode to their website. Be sure to go check them out. Have a good one, folks. What's going on, folks? Got another episode of CC's Word coming at you. And uh, it's an interesting week, folks. This week is the week that will uh, end with the marking of 100 days since Joe Biden became president of the United States. Um, on Friday will be his 100th day. And uh, why is this significant? Why am I bringing this up? The reason why I'm bringing this up, folks, is because last episode I talked a little bit about it toward the end. But I also did an episode before Biden became president uh, before he took office, he had already won the election at this point, where I laid out the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival, uh, their 14 policy priorities to heal the nation, a moral and economic agenda for the first 100 days. I'll be honest, folks, I'm at a place where I took this list of policies as really the main I would say driver of what I felt the uh, the administration should base a lot of their economic policy off of when it comes to middle and working class, particularly the poor working class, um, which the Poor People's Campaign really aims to try to help the most. Uh, so uh, I think that of these 14 policy priorities, the Biden administration, I'm going to go through them in this episode once again, and I'm going to break down Essentially, what I feel the Biden administration has actually done to address these issues or to actually uh, make these policy priorities a priority of his administration. Um, and, and I'll, of course, present where I feel he's lacked uh, and dropped the ball and most likely uh, failed the poor people of this country in a lot of ways. Uh, but with that said... Let's get into the uh, the policy priorities. So once again, this is something that I'm going to put in the description of this episode. You'll be able to find it uh, on the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival. Uh, their website is poorpeoplescampaign.org. You'll be able to find the 14 policy priorities to heal the nation there. Uh, and so what, what? Let's let's go through these once again. So what uh, they called for, uh, again, this was something that was... Uh, published at the uh, beginning of the year before uh, Biden took office. Uh, their goals were a 
comprehensive, free, and just COVID-19 relief. And including in that, they felt that they should mandate uh, the collection of monitoring and reporting of the impact of pandemic by race, ethnicity, income, that's big occupation and geography, and in high-risk congregate settings, uh, which means you have to go to the people, right, that are at most at risk for COVID and see what are the ways you're going to be able to uh, best uh, really try to curb the spread of COVID in their community. Uh, an equitable and free COVID-19 testing plan, uh, treatment and quality care, including mental health, safety, testing, uh, or safely tested vaccines, regardless of income, age, ability, documentation status, injury status, or any other factor. Uh, access to the vaccines must be guaranteed to low-wage frontline workers, as well as healthcare workers, the elderly, and the most vulnerable. Now, this is where I will say the Biden administration, I think, has done pretty well when it comes to the vaccine and, and comes to getting it out and making it as widely available as possible. What I think uh, they may not be doing the best at is messaging and really trying to tell, uh, you know, be able to put forward, um, I think, a better argument against those who are skeptical of the vaccine. Uh, even though I do feel that there is a percentage of people who just won't take the vaccine, really, regardless of of what they feel, um, what public officials and, you know, anyone outside of, of their own, you know, brain really try to tell us them to do. I, I say that because um, there is there's a lot of people that I think are, are skeptical of a lot of the, the new developments in uh, the vaccine. And I don't judge anyone for their beliefs uh, unless it's completely unfounded in, in any truth. Um, if you don't understand I me, mean, I've looked at this podcast, or, or if you listen to this podcast, I've gone through how there is a system, like a large amount of just uh, absolute distrust in the system and in any of the institutions uh, that make up this country, including our healthcare, including our our, our medical professionals, including our uh, medical research, and 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 I mean, of course, when you have these vaccines coming from. Uh, the big pharma corporations, some of the same corporations that put forward, uh, you know, drugs that have caused more problems for the American people than they've actually solved. Uh, you you do wonder, well, why you know why are we so quick to judge individuals that have skepticism about whether or not to trust uh, those corporations? I'll never take the side of a corporation over 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 middle class and low income people. When it comes to them having valid concerns over whether or not the efficacy of this vaccine is something they should uh, rely on. Uh, with that said, I think the evidence there is overwhelming to where the vaccine is something that's safe to take. Uh, but it's uh, generally for for you know for for most people it's safe to take. Uh, but I say all that to say the Joe Biden administration. I think has done a well at distributing it and has done well at uh, putting forward a plan that actually, you know, pretty solidly gets the vaccine out there. Where they have failed greatly, though, is, is on the international stage when it comes to uh, trying to get the vaccine out to countries that are low of low wealth and, and maybe not able to develop the vaccine without the patents or the, the formulas to make the vaccine. And we're saying, no, we're going to protect the profits of our corporations 
over the health of the entire world, the developing world, uh, by uh, keeping our vaccine formula in-house until you pay for it, essentially. China, on the other hand, even though they have only, a, I believe that the last I heard, their vaccine is only 60% effective, they are giving theirs out free and have been giving like millions of doses around the world into developing countries uh, for free and has been doing it ahead of giving their own citizens some of the vaccines. And I bring that up because that kind of goes into a deeper point where at some point I'm going to explore kind of how I feel about the world and where we are geopolitically right now. But when it comes to China, if you want to talk about strategically, if our long-term agenda is to be able to, you know, limit China's influence and be able to, uh, you know, rely on these countries, quote unquote, being beacons of democracy and freedom, even though we know that, you know, often we exploit countries in the same way that China does. Um, we have to, you know, we have to understand, like, if that's the goal, if the goal is to really try to basically contain China and make our country seen as a stronger nation and, and one that is more reliable, why would you not try to beat them on getting the vaccine out to every country that needs it? What are we doing? That right there, folks, is a prime example of where our economic system and our nation and government really operates in a way that is more focused on money than individuals and i think that i'm a believer that uh look i think that it's 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 great to have ambition and to be rich in uh in 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 ethical ways if possible if at all possible i'd love for that to happen uh but let's let's not try and you know let's not try and and just make America even seem worse than we already are uh, by failing to do things that are very easy such as assuring that this vaccine can get to everyone as soon as possible uh, and as many people in the world as we can um, but I say all that to say uh, I'm very disappointed in the way they are just trying to make as much money as they can off of the vaccine not necessarily actually trying to help the the world and, and try to end this global health challenge. That's what it is. Uh, so that that's the type of things where it's like a Biden administration will, will kind of always take American corporations over uh, humanity sometimes. <laughs> I think that I'll say always, but um, I think that COVID kind of, I mean, if you're not going to do it now, when will you, man? You know, if you're not going to put people over profits now, when will you, man? So, those are the type of things that uh, the administration, I think, has done good and bad on when it comes to COVID. Uh, and and so, when it comes to breaking down, um, there's one thing, a guaranteed and adequate income, including rapid and direct payments to all low-income and temporary workers for the duration of the crisis. Failure there, because I believe uh, that we, of course, need... Um, We need a universal basic income, but if we're not going to do UBI, there's certainly, I have said, like, today in April, now, would have been when I would have came back to the table to discuss whether or not we end or further, uh, like, giving out stimulus payments. 
Because what I believe should have happened, uh, and I believe what the uh, the Poor People's Campaign supports is reoccurring checks. I say 2000 I don't know what number the Poor People's Campaign really cares about. I think that they're probably in the range of 2002 maybe at least 1200 a month. Uh, but there should have been monthly checks for the duration of this crisis, 100%. That should have been something that Biden passed in the first week, and it wasn't. And so uh, we got to $1,400 after two weeks, and we didn't get to 2000 which was the one payment of 2000 we were promised, right? And we can go into that, but we're not going to. We've already done an episode on that. Uh, and one of the last things they'd say is a targeted plan to guarantee access and education around the safety and efficacy of the vaccine, especially for poor and low-income communities. It goes back to exactly what I was just talking about. The, you have to invest in educating these people, and, and I would say these people, educating everyone on vaccines, even me. I don't know anything about a vaccine. I don't know how you make it. I don't know how it's made. I don't know how they, they made it happen. I don't know how it works, really, until you explain it to me because I'm not a scientist, right? So we need people to go into communities and let everyone know what is up. And the reason why that's the case is because, like I said, there's a lack of institutional trust in this in so many of the you know organizations and you know government programs and various departments that make up our government make up our our you know uh, our public institutions there's a great deal of a lack of trust in those and so you have to wonder, like, well, why is that the case? And a lot of it has to do with just failures of government and policy. But, you know, I've gone over that many times in this podcast, too, over the years, about how, you know, I've gone through the many policy failures of this country. But we move on. And so you got to do more of an effort to try to get people to understand that well, here's the benefits of this. Here's why you should take it. And, uh, and, and another thing that they're already being terrible at, I think, is there is this effort by a lot of people, especially kind of your coastal liberal types, your proud Biden voter types. They uh, are the types to uh, to believe like, hey, we should tell everyone to stay in the back, like stay in and stay inside, to keep wearing your mask, all this stuff nonstop even when you get the vaccine and a lot of people do wonder okay well what is the point of getting the vaccine if nothing changes and that's why i'm actually very excited that the biden administration came out today and kind of put a lot of their people in check hopefully and uh, saying like well no the cdc does recommend that we can go outside without a mask and gather in groups if you uh, are vaccinated and so that gives people some hope in saying like well look there is a actual light ahead in the tunnel of maybe going back to some semblance of normalcy after you get a vaccine. Uh, and you have to stop the, and discourage the people who try and say, like, oh, we have to stay locked down and stay triple masked up and wearing gloves and in a hazmat suit everywhere we go because COVID still is around even when we have the vaccine. That is crazy talk, just as crazy as 
people who 100% want to deny that the vaccine just doesn't work at all when there is evidence that that happens to there there's like you you to me are just as bad as saying the vaccine doesn't work at all as saying no the vaccine works but i think we should still act like we don't have a vaccine you're doing just as much damage to the confidence of the vaccine as people that deny the vaccine or that say that you know it's a hoax or it's something that's you know nefarious you're just as bad so we gotta do better with that folks i think that the biden administration uh today with their announcement kind of starting to do that uh continued covet relief is is uh, i'm gonna continue on the, the policy priority for the uh people poor people's campaign uh increase the impact of food and in- economic security programs like snap wic utc et pc by raising the minimum allocations and expanding eligibility do not believe that was something they did they included in the last package it should definitely should have been uh folks the 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 need for this is great and i'll tell you why a little later a national rent freeze and mortgage moratorium as well as a national moratorium on utilities shutoffs without credit penalties that's big that again goes back to the idea of like we would have to spend money here to put people over capital put people over corporations and uh that's just not something that the Biden administration i think it's going to be really too keen on as uh, as far as actually taking bold actions to do that and uh, a national rent freeze and mortgage moratorium is a way to do that there have been so many people that have been kicked out of their homes and uh are still at risk of being kicked out of their homes uh would have been would have been prevented they would have made this happen a uh, increase in resources to keep all rural hospitals and community health centers open with an infusion of resources to Indian health services. And that goes to Native American, I believe that's, that's, that goes to Native American health services. Uh, permanent protections for serial secu- uh, for Social Security, SSI, SSDI, Medicare, Medicaid. That's important for people who may have lost their jobs or who may have uh, somehow been taken out of eligibility due to COVID. That's happened. That's a story that I saw. That, uh, that I mean, that, that was something that was big last year that they haven't really taken any action on. And so it's important that we, we try and make that happen. But uh, emergency OSHA standards for health workers, first responders, anyone else on frontline positions. I'm not sure if they did that or not. But uh, the idea is like this is a universal way of making sure everyone is following the rules and in, in their workplaces to assure that you know COVID is, is not spreading too much, and, and again these are things that really should have been done so long ago, and now that we are on the week that Biden will become a hundred uh, or reach a hundred days, and a guy a good bit of this hasn't been accomplished, uh, it's sad to say that there's a chance that maybe it won't be accomplished. Um, but continuing on, we have resources uh, again. Uh, I already said that. I'm sorry. Permanent protections for Social Security. I said that one too. <laughs> um, uh, protections for people in mental health facilities, prisons, detention centers, juvenile detention centers, and other congregate settings. That's important because that goes into uh, speaking on how essentially there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of hospitals and there's a lot of prisons 
and it's still going on, man, where COVID went crazy in those places, and they did nothing to help them, especially in Alabama. A lot of places throughout the South, a lot of private prisons. You were left to die, man, if you were a, uh, if you're a prisoner and you were, you you were in a situation where like you, you were given a mask and it probably wasn't kept clean, it wasn't new, it wasn't renewed every day or every <clears throat> time you put it on, like it probably should be. But boy, I tell you, it's it's a shame, and so nothing has been done on that. Uh, they also believe that there should have been suspension of uh, CBP, which is uh, the the Border Patrol and ICE enforcements and ensuring all emergency provisions are made available to immigrants including undocumented people when this uh first came out a lot of people that were skeptical about that and i uh i was very supportive of it folks and i'll tell you why if we wanted to beat this vaccine and we wanted to make sure or if we wanted to beat this virus we wanted to make sure the economy could open back up fully guess what folks we have to assure that even the people who are here and undocumented are given the opportunity to get help if they get coronavirus. And the idea that we're just going like, hey, we're going to, I mean, we don't even put the resources toward just kicking someone out of the country in a hospital. But the idea that we're going to exclude like a significant portions, millions of people in this country from not getting COVID help because they are not full citizens is insane. And that is the type of tribalism that would lead to the downfall of this country in the sense of, uh, I'm not saying that we don't need to enforce our borders and we don't need to keep our uh, immigration uh, processes in check. Uh, But I am saying a lot of that is flawed. And the people that we have in this country are all not here for bad intentions there are i would like to believe probably 99 percent of undocumented immigrants here probably even more of a percentage than that are here to uh to do nothing but have a better life than where they left uh and that goes into like a whole thing of how for years the cia corporate america corporate europe corporate whoever any country that needed exported the exportation of natural resources in south america or in central america or in the caribbeans they screwed many people many generations of these countries and we expect them to be able to just hop back into the modern world and fend for themselves and not be able to yield any of the reward of their people, which our country has often taken from them uh, illegally and without a just reason. So, folks, the immigration issue is so complicated, and it's such it goes so many layers deep that to try and take a one hard stand on it. Uh, such as trying to like say we need closed borders or we need to, uh, you know, just I don't, I don't know what the like the 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 rights position on immigration is at this point because 
they want to build the wall, but it's like, okay, we know that that, for one, is so, like, it's not the most effective way to do it. And, like, there's so many studies that show that there's way more cost-effective ways to assure that the border is protected and that the laws are enforced. But, regardless, the idea that we're just going to, like, round up every undocumented citizen and then send them out this country, I think that's, like, the right-wing dream. Um, I think that ideally, though, what's going to need to happen is another massive amnesty program, and we need to do everything we can to assure that the damage of the past that's been done to many South American and Central American nations are not repeated in the future. And sadly, it's already been done. We're already intervening in Bolivia's elections. We're already intervening in Venezuela's elections. Look, I'm not saying I agree with the leadership of all those countries, but certainly uh, I believe that the people, I believe in the principle of self-determination for the people of a country. And if they vote someone in and it's a free and fair election, guess what? If they don't agree with the United States, oh, well, we got to deal with it. Be di diplomats and actually make something, make deals happen and not just go in and try to be gunmen, which is what we've done in our foreign policy in almost every situation. If you're not cooperating, you're getting killed, baby. That's how the U.S. operates. <laughs> or you're getting taken out of office. You might be taken out of office peacefully if you're lucky. But it will not be by the will of your people. I guarantee you that. <sighs> Increased support for public schools to provide continuous, equitable, and quality remote learning access for the duration of any school closures, including for children with disabilities and for schools to continue to provide social services for qualifying children and families. This was big because there was a lot of schools that, uh, unfortunately, like they had to, they, they had no in-person classes. So all Zoom, uh, you had low-income kids that were facing so many challenges with this. One, not having good access to the internet. Two, not having uh, maybe uh, really, you know, a, a good meal source because for so many low-income kids, going to school is one of the places that they may be only like guaranteed a meal. One of the few places that are maybe guaranteed a meal. Uh, and that needs to be something that's maintained. There are many schools throughout, uh, like the Birmingham area, I know that continue to do that. So, you know, there was money for that there, but there were still places around this country that it didn't happen. And if you didn't uh, have the money to do it, you just didn't do it. And this is a place where the federal government 100% could have stepped in and increased the uh, funding to assure that there was more going toward programs like these to assure that kids got food. And uh, even families sometimes go to these schools to get food. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll have a student there and the whole family can get fed. Uh, student debt relief. This is big. Of course, $50,000 in debt was something that was floated at the beginning of this administration. That has seemed to disappear into thin air. They signed $10,000 debt relief bill that was, again, just like $10,000 or, or I think, I don't think, I'm sorry, it wasn't $10,000. I believe it was 10%. Let's look it up, folks. Okay, this is it, yeah. So, President Biden 
signed into law a, a or, or signed essentially a debt forgiveness uh, policy that only takes the debt away from individuals who were in schools that basically closed down or were not accredited uh, anymore or, or basically like were scams or like if, if anyone was taken like essentially it goes back to again the 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 type of politics this administration puts forward is always watered down bare minimum stuff and this is another example of that i won't say always but like many times it's bare minimum stuff and this is another example of that wherein you have student debt relief fifty thousand dollars in student debt would be a massive help to so many folks in this country to so many folks in my situation who are students who have gone who had to pay for school mostly 100 percent by themselves maybe didn't qualify for all the scholarships maybe didn't qualify for all the grants we're right in that middle about 20 percent of americans that don't have the qualifications to get full rise schools based on income or even academic ability and so we're stuck there man and the question becomes i i'm starting to talk like biden i feel like but the thing becomes like at what point can we actually make a comprehensive transformative type of policy shift like that policy move like that that's the type of thing you need to think about biden why aren't we doing that last on the uh, covid relief uh, section of this uh, 14 policy priority list is uh, essentially many of the measures in the economic recovery plans. They want a bottom up approach and uh, wherein individuals are guaranteed health care, housing and adequate incomes for all. Those are things that our nation 100 percent can do. And 100 percent can afford it's just about political will and the uh, and 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 the energy to make it happen, folks. I think I'm more optimistic, and I'm going to say this. I've said it many times throughout this year. I'm going to keep saying it. I'm more optimistic about the future than I really have been in a long time, um, because when it comes to politics, because I feel that we're at a place where the American people are really understanding that, like. Joe Biden announcing that we are getting rid of child poverty for a temporary basis is an insane thing to celebrate. Is an insane thing to celebrate when we have the power and the ability to end it permanently, to end it forever, to end poverty to zero percent. Bring it down. We can make it happen. People are like, oh, man, this policy and this, uh, I bring that up because some of the headlines about the COVID-19 relief package was, oh, wow, look how much child poverty has been relieved from this. Temporary, folks. It is very limited. Now, with that said, you have a lot of other policy priorities or policy goals out there that they've thrown out, such as the monthly child credit which would be included in this next infrastructure package, I believe, that they're looking to put forward. And this would be something that's going to be given out until 2025. I, again, universal, permanent programs. Give them to me, folks. 
that is what I believe we have to go towards. So I'm thinking, again, we need to go for that monthly child tax credit every month, every year for every American household. Now, you could say that you can maybe limit that to only a certain amount per uh, like for, for income brackets. But I'm not a believer in means testing, folks. I'm a believer in universal programs because then the benefit is something that can be felt by every American regardless of your income and like yes folks we should make decisions like that some people think that like only the poor should get any additional help from the government no it's cool if the middle class gets a little bit too that's kind of how they were built man and you look at the uh, the new deal and you look at the the new deal era of politics where the people don't get that like fdr began something that wasn't ended until reagan until really kind of nixon era where like even nixon folks was making new government departments which hasn't been done to uh, something that i think will actually benefit the american people greatly uh more than it hurts us since the environmental protection agency was established by uh by uh, richard nixon since then you've had the department of homeland security which we know Boy, I could go for hours on my disagreements with that department and its duties. And the Space Force. And so, we have seen more money and effort going toward the expansion of the military state and the police state in this country than the welfare state, which is needed, or the uh the social safety net of this country in any really major way that's kind of my biggest grievance folks with the past 50 40 40 to 50 to 60 years of our politics number two on the list of 14 policy points for uh ports 14 policy priorities uh that the poor people's campaign has put out number two is guaranteed quality health care for all regardless of any pre-existing conditions. This is big. They say that this begins with expanding Medicaid in every state, ensuring Medicare, working towards enacting a public universal health care option, and building up a public, uh, our public health infrastructure. It also includes fully funding, expanding Indian health services. Again, I believe that's Native American health services. And ensuring quality health care for those who are incarcerated and detained. I'm big. I mean, you you know where I stand on this, folks. Universal health care. We need it. Every developed nation in this country or on this planet has it, except for us. And uh, our outcomes and our wait times and all that, it's about the same, folks. So much of the opposition to universal health care in this country is propaganda and lies because a lot of it is not backed up by data. There are two points you can make that's fair. In the American healthcare system, you are more likely to survive cancer. And in the American healthcare system, you are more likely, I believe, to survive a uh, like a heart pro- open heart problem, like like massive congenital heart problems. Of course, that's something our country specializes in because we have a lot of that in this country, and a lot of that comes from people not having adequate healthcare or health insurance to be able to take care of themselves and to be able to be healthy. So, going back to the main point. Really, you only have one 
incredible point, in my opinion, against universal health care in this country. And that is to say that you, our current system, you are more, in our current system compared to other countries, you're more likely to survive cancer in this nation. Again, though, that, I believe, has nothing to do really with how we pay for our system or how we pay for our health care at the point of service, at the point of being a patient. I believe that has to do with uh, we as a nation putting a lot of effort and energy into cancer research and into uh, assuring that we actually can can treat it a lot better than other countries. I mean, that's something that we just yay for us. But let's not try to act like that is an invention of the healthcare insurance companies. What are you talking about? That's an invention of publicly funded, taxpayer funded research. And then we had to pay more on the other end to get the service that we already paid to develop and research. What kind of sense does that make, folks? Number three, raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour immediately. Increase the minimum wage immediately to 15 an hour and then annually until it reaches a true housing rage estimated at $23 an hour in 2018. Guarantee the right to form and join unions to all workers. So the PRO Act is something that will do that last thing, guarantee the right to form and join unions to all workers. That's something that I've talked about on this show. The PRO Act is something that's passed the House and it's awaiting a Senate vote at some point. And there have been some senators that have come out in support of it, uh, such as like Joe Manchin and uh, <clears throat> people that you would expect to maybe be uh, outside the supporters of uh, the PRO Act. But uh, this is big, folks. This makes the PRO Act would be big. The, the reason why I'm addressing this primarily is because the $15 minimum wage part of this section we've already really gone through on this podcast and we already know. The position of the Biden administration is to not fight for that, at least not now. They don't feel it's necessary. They don't feel that the compromise position of $15 an hour, which is exactly what it is, a compromise position, it isn't the radical position. The real radical position, I guess you could say, is $23 an hour, like they say here uh, in 2018. That was that was the adequate uh, wage you would need to have uh, good housing in this country. Uh, we are still at a place where if you kept the minimum wage up with worker production or with the uh, stock market increases when it comes to uh, corporations and, and CEO pay and the way they have increased their returns, their profits, their income, there would be a minimum wage of at least $24 in this country. I believe that's what the uh, the data shows. And so... With that, we have to understand that it's not crazy to say we need $15 an hour. That, folks, is giving, again, the bare minimum you can to the poor people and working people of this country. $15 an hour is not the radical position, folks. You want to say, well, what about the small businesses? Let's subsidize them like we do oil companies and major corporations all the time to put business into cities. Amazon and oil companies are two of the biggest examples of that. We give billions in subsidies and taxpayer money to be given to oil companies who you know, do nothing but really, uh, of course, they produce oil and they renew and refine oil, but that is increasingly becoming a less uh, 
you know, needed thing in our world, right? And and, and we have to start shifting away from that. Anyways, uh, we give them billions a year to continue producing oil and to bring jobs to different places. We do the same thing with Amazon. Why is it wild and radical to say we can't do the same thing with many of our small businesses? People will say, well, they're more reliable. Our small businesses or our small businesses may not be as reliable as those other countries, those major corporations. But here's the thing. A lot of the reasons why you could say small businesses are reliable is because of a lack of capital, because of a lack of ability to earn or uh, well, I won't say a lack of ability to earn. They may have the ability to earn, but there has to be. It, it's just the argument there is crazy for one to compare a corporation to a small business. But let's be honest, if we're going to try to do this, it is fair to say that the small businesses with adequate funding would have a better and bigger impact on small communities and on communities, uh, really especially when it comes to poor and working class people, than major corporations would have. That's what I believe, and that's what the... That's what the Democrats used to believe. What's what the Republicans used to believe, too. And both those parties have just thrown small business owners out the window until it's politically convenient for them to drag them out as a puppet. Such as when COVID lockdowns happen. If COVID lockdown was such a priority for the Republican Party, they would have supported more stimulus because if we would have locked down for two months, giving people more stimulus, we probably would have beat COVID a lot sooner. That's what a lot of experts say, at least. And uh, you can trust those experts for whatever that you know that you feel their word is worth now. But you know, I, I like to believe that's one prediction that uh, should have been given a shot. Uh, number four, update the poverty measure. This is major. This is major. A new measure to replace the current poverty line in a in a, a poverty line to accurately reflect current conditions of poverty and economic insecurity. The new measure must in include uh, race, age, fam familial status, uh, ability, geography, and sexual orientation, and establish a new basis for eligibility, appropriations, and allocations of resources. So this is big, folks, because I believe that the poverty line is still $12,000 a year. Folks, $12,000 a year is below the poverty line in modern times. It's not the poverty line. The poverty line really should be, I mean, we're, we're talking like, in some cases, I think there's not really many places, that there's there's a lot of places in this country where you can't even live off $20,000 a year. It's very difficult to live a comfortable life, if you have a family especially. So the idea that we're going to have, if you have a household that's making $20,000 or less in this country, they're having a tough time, I can guarantee you. Unless it's, I, I really, I can't even think of an, a, a, a way that someone could be making it well on that. I, I'll say this. Obviously, I think that if it was a single individual who was living by themselves in a small town, maybe, that had no uh, major expenditures uh, and just need to maybe get gas, put in the car, go to work, and, uh, you know, enough money to pay the bills... Uh, as far as like keeping the lights on and keeping, uh, you know, the water flowing, you may be able to afford that for twenty thousand dollars in a small town somewhere in like Oklahoma or Utah or Nebraska or Alabama or you know somewhere like that. But 
let's be real, folks. There's a lot of people that are in major cities in this country that are below that line. They're way below twelve thousand dollars. They're way. Um, they're way. I mean, they're. I'm sorry. They are below twenty thousand dollars, and not doing well. And they are below, above twelve thousand dollars and still not doing well. We gotta do way better than that, folks. Number five, guarantee quality housing for all. This is big. Expand public and affordable housing and rental assistance. Stop all foreclosures and evictions immediately. Enact a rent freeze, including stopping all increases in rent and cancel rent and mortgage payments that cannot be paid. Move the burden of proof of off of renters and households that are facing eviction to the financial interests that are seeking evictions. Here's the thing, folks. A lot of people will say, when it comes to rent moratoriums, when it comes to relief on rent and mortgages, well, what about the landlords? Folks, the amount of landlords that are actual individuals or small business owners is not very high in this country anymore. I need you to understand, folks, that when we talk about landlords, you're talking about banks and major corporations that have bought land or properties and managed them as a asset and as a part of their portfolio and it's just another number on paper to them it's not they don't see the people in those houses there are so many stories folks of corporate landlords that are putting people in dilapidated housing conditions charging crazy prices just because of the area or just because of the uh, locate you know the um, services around them or whatever it is and you have a situation where now, where people are not able to afford rent, maybe now you to afford their mortgage payments because of COVID, and it is the corporate landlords, the banks, major banks that often own a lot of you know property in this country, those people who have made billions during the pandemic are kicking the folks that have lost their job or have lost their ability to pay for their homes out on the streets. I don't think there's anyone who can look at that situation, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, and if you still land with the corporate landlords, the big billionaires, and the major banks that own a lot of this country, then you've got to really be uh, lacking, I think, a lot of humanity, folks, because that's important here. When it comes to discussing the ways that we can really begin to shift the way our country uh, and our economy works to better help the middle class and low income folks. We're at six. We got 40. We got uh, eight more folks. Enact a federal jobs program to build up investments, infrastructure, public institutions, climate resilience, energy efficiency, social beneficial industries and jobs in poor and low income communities. I'm going to go through each and every part of that, but some of that is basically just essentially what I've talked about so much on this program, folks. I mean, a massive jobs program, infrastructure and jobs training program is needed, folks. It would make our country so much better than where we are today, man. We have a civil, a American Society of Civil Engineers rating. It used to be D minus. It's now I think a C or C minus as far as the rating of our infrastructure. 
hey folks why don't we shoot for an A and the way we can do that is by making a massive new deal era type jobs program infrastructure building program where we put in projects that will benefit and be equitable to the areas and the people around them and have great economic uh, expansion potential for swaths of this country. And this is interesting, folks, because we're really getting to a place where middle America is becoming more important. There were stories that came out today because they did redistricting and you saw a lot of coastal countries or coastal states and lose house seats, lose population uh, between uh, you know the, the census. And so, folks, that's important because middle America... With, with so many people moving there, with so many people coming to the south and, and, and leaving, you know, major corporate uh, or, ma yeah, I'm sorry, major uh, cities and, and uh, metropolises that have been really built up. Now there is a need to build up so much of rural America, so much of middle America, so much of uh, the south. We can make this happen. And it would be one of the most transformative and I think unifying uh, policies for, that this country has ever seen if we do it right. That's big if. And Biden wants to talk about being FDR, man. This is FDR type stuff. Hey, step up to the plate, guy. Don't invoke a name unless you're going to be about actually bringing it to pass, bringing the type of policies that FDR put into place to, uh, to reality. Number seven, protect and expand voting rights and civil rights. Of course, we've seen this become a sticking point in a lot of southern states and a lot of republican states who feel their majority is in threat and so they want to try and assure that they limit the people who can vote so that uh, they don't have to change their policy approaches or do anything to appeal to more voters but just stop the voters that won't vote for them from voting that's kind of what we're doing in a lot of republican states now so now what the uh Poor People's Campaign says a restoration of the Voting Rights Act and a pre-clearance formula that applies to formula covered VRA restrictions, jurisdictions, as well as any states that just that passed voter suppression laws since 2013. I would say that we should do it with every state. That's my only edit to that policy, because I think that a valid point that a lot of people on the right will make against uh, section, uh, I believe it's section three of the or section 13 i'm sorry not knowing this correctly folks exactly but there's a part of the voting rights amendment or a voting rights act of 1965 that essentially stops uh individuals from uh, it stops states that used to be like jim crow states from making decisions about voting laws changes with voting laws without approval from the uh, the, the um, Department of Justice and the Attorney General's office. I believe that should be something that we do in every state, not just those uh, former Jim Crow law states. Make it uh, something that every state does. That way you take that excuse out of the pocket of the right and the Republicans who want to say, well, it's unfair, it's only applied to southern states or to certain states. Okay, let's do it to every, country, every state in this country and ensure that every state is, uh, is upheld 
uh, or upholding the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. Making Election Day a holiday, that's big. Ensuring the formerly and currently incarcerated the right to vote, that's major. There's no reason that someone who, uh, especially if you have done something where you are not in prison for life, or even if you are in prison for life, I believe that it's fair that you should be able to vote. The idea that you shouldn't uh, have the ability to vote, I would say it's fair to make an argument that if you took the life of someone, therefore taking that person's ability to vote, then perhaps you should not have the ability to vote either. But that's about the only suggest that's the only situation I would support taking someone's right to vote uh, right to vote away. Uh, would be had to be murder. It would have to be murder. Um, it would have to be murder in, in a situation where they are spending like life in prison um, or on death row. Um, but um, even if they're on death row, we know that that can be a very flawed system as well. So we need to look into assuring that everyone can vote in this country, folks, and making sure more people can vote in this country. Uh, it's ridiculous what's happening. It's ridiculous. There's a reversal of a lot of progress happening. And with that, all of it is is political signaling in a lot of instances, where it's it's not something that's going to affect me, right? As an African American, uh, middle middle class African American fellow, who has the uh, ID identification and all the qualifications to vote correctly, but it will affect people who are not as fortunate as me, and that is why I feel we all should make a stand to assure that there are no infringements on the right to vote for anyone in this country. And uh, let's return to the standards that uh, were keeping elections very secure and very well ran before. The idea that there's so much fraud in our elections that it changes the outcome is insane. We know that. That's the Trump people saying that there's fraud. We know that's crazy, and it's just as crazy for anyone who's any other Republican in any other race to say, that there's fraud and that the election was stolen from them because you had people who somehow were illegally able to vote without anyone stopping them or anyone being throughout the entire process being able to say, hey, are you actually qualified to vote? I've been able to vote in, in some, I mean, we're in the South, so hey, it's, hey, they're going to make sure you, you, you do all this stuff right here. And they have, I mean, this is where they restrict a lot of people right here in the South, but... God, man. I say I like to say, like, we have just, the, uh, we, we have, like, enough measures in place to secure our votes. And if there are really any additional measures that are needed, the approaches that the Republicans are taking in a lot of these states, it's not it. Let's be honest. Let's be real. This is about suppression. Okay? Just like the Democrats in the 1920s and the early. 1900s in general did this throughout large parts of the country so hey it's no better then it's not good now so <clears throat> number eight guarantee safe quality and equitable public education that supports uh for protection against resegregation that's big because you've seen a lot of uh ways of that essentially happening or communities being split up based on, uh, you know, often based on just income or based on 
you know, uh, not just race. I mean, it really income is the biggest thing that they try to divide people over these days. And I think that um, we're at a place, folks, where we're going to end up uh, we're going to end up in, the, in a big fight between what should be public and what should be private. And uh, we got to really figure out what should be private or public before it all becomes public or it all becomes private. Uh, I'd hate for either one of those situations to happen. But number nine, comprehensive and just immigration reform. That's big. I always went through that earlier a little bit. Just number 10, ensure all of the rights of indigenous peoples. I could have a whole episode on this, folks. I mean, it's there's, there's so many, uh, there's so much damage that's been done to the Native Americans. And uh, folks, again, I got to do an all, a whole episode on that. I believe one of the main things we need to do is look into how we can improve the mental health and the economic potential of Native Americans, even on reservations, uh, because that is the one of the, the, the lack of economic opportunity and mental health issues is uh, some of the main drivers for a lot of the 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 bad trends that we see in uh, in Native American society and, and on reservations across this country. Number ten, ensure all of the rights. Uh, or we are even over that. I keep saying it, folks. <laughs> Number eleven, enact fair taxes. That's major. Of course, that is just overturning the Trump tax bill, which was un unbelievable. We already went through that on this program too, where eighty percent uh, or more of the benefits went to the top. 1% of this country, and then the rest of us 99%ers were given a few crumbs and told us uh, that it was a victory for us when it really was a big middle finger for us if you pay attention and a great giveaway to corporate America and to the billionaires of this country. Uh, number 12, use the power of executive orders. Biden sucks at this, dude. He sucks at this. All right. And, and I mean, there's really not else, much else I can say, man. He's terrible at this because... The power of the presidency is is a massive, folks, and sadly we've seen a increase of that in a lot of nefarious ways over the past probably ten to twenty years. But when it comes to you know the power here at home that the executive has to, especially when it comes to the economy, there's a lot more that could be done. And unfortunately, I feel there is a lot of hesitancy with the Biden administration. To take action in executive actions uh, in order to in, improve the country. I mean, folks, Joe Biden, I think it was over FDR. We're going to look this up real quick. I always like to compare FDR because it's one of the, one of the better presidents we've had, folks. FDR EOs. So FDR had, I'm trying to say, FDR had 9,537 executive orders. So, folks, let's be real. Any president that wants to try to say they're going to be transformative and they don't use the power of the executive in a way that can actually benefit the American people, then you are a joke to me. You are not a president that... You're not a president in the sense of what 
the office should be, what the position should do. Uh, in the time of crisis, especially. Trump failed greatly at that and uh, only signed executive orders that are public, that can politically convenient for him. And uh, Biden is, is, is seemingly kind of doing some of the same stuff. Number 13, redirect the bloated Pentagon budget towards these priorities as matters of national security. That's big too, folks. That's one that I don't think uh, we, again, that goes back to the conflict of uh, corporate America versus the American people. And let's be real. There's a lot that goes into the military industrial complex. There's a lot that goes into wars, into the... uh, the, the various fights that we have put ourselves in in foreign countries. And uh, it all has to do with money. In a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's just that. It has to do with money. It has to do with power and resources, just like almost every other conflict in the history of this country has been. Um, except for you know World War II and, and, and civil wars, wars that were actually needed and fought. But... When it comes to many of our military actions in the past 10 to 20 years, it's been uh, very offensive and uh, very little defense. And they say it's defensive, but folks, we're, we're initiating a lot of these attacks for it to be defensive. We're initiating a lot of these, these, uh, these, these funding of terror groups that are not terror groups until they make our people mad when they have been terrorizing civilians in many of the countries that we support them in for years. They're not terrorists until we designate them terrorists. That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Number 14, folks. Last but not least, I'm going to try to wrap it up here in a bit. Work with the Poor People's Campaign to establish a permanent presidential council to advocate for this bold agenda. And again, I'm going to leave this description in the uh, bio, folks, to to give you uh, a breakdown of, of of what that policy priority list is. And if, if you want to see it all, you can. Uh, but folks, essentially, many of these things have not been done. I went through each of them and I went through the ones that have actually been uh, you know, somewhat acted upon by the Biden administration and the ones that they have failed at greatly. There's an overwhelming amount of failures. And I mean, I, I, I don't want to end every episode with this, you know, destruct this, this monologue about how terrible the Biden administration is or how bad their politics is. But folks... My reasons to dislike the Biden administration and to uh, to call them out for what they've done is completely opposite from anything you'll hear on mainstream media or completely opposite from anything that that most people have dispute wise with the president. So I, I say that because I'm not just following the crowd. I'm not just being I'm not just saying, I'm not just follow, repeating what I hear. I'm not just doing anything other than pointing out where our leadership is failing on major policy uh, solutions that need to be taking place on this country. Uh, Because if we don't, folks, 
we uh we're really getting to a real 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 bad place uh with the amount of economic inequality that's in this country and really the amount of there's a lack of stability for family growth in this country folks that's one big issue we've seen one of the uh, some of the biggest decreases in uh, fertility rates in this country um and uh, or excuse me not fertility rates but birth rates in this country because we don't want to really address the issues of why that's happening there are people who would argue oh it's this is what's in um, and folks i do not believe this before i say it but there are folks that would argue this it's the gay agenda the lgbt community that has forced uh you know straight americans or family values out of america and so they aren't keep there there aren't more kids taking place a lot of people want to make that distinction and or a lot of people want to i won't say a lot of people won't say that there are some people that will say that there are those that come from you know my background as a growing up in a deep south christian home that is uh the type of uh as the type of takes that i may hear about why we have seen less families in this country there are some people who would say oh it's just these kids are lazy they don't want to have kids there's uh, a lot of takes on that, folks, but here's the truth. My generation has gone through three economic crises. We've seen, uh, or, or I won't say three economic crises, but for sure two. And that was COVID uh, and last year and and big economic crash we had from that. And uh, 2008, where we had the financial recession. And we are expected to we have seen let me continue describing our, our generation's situation we've seen wars that have not been explained fully to us non-stop with no clear end or goal in mind shout out to biden for putting september 11th on the calendar as the date will leave halfway afghanistan let's see if he follows through folks until then Again, our generation has faced like three wars for sure that we have been in and no one explains why we're there. No one gives any type of uh, explanation as to what is a victory now. No one says anything, but we need to keep sending more of my college aged or younger kids or and sometimes older to die in wars. Uh, over profits, oil, uh, oil resources, and uh, and that's what it is. They don't want to say that, folks. We have seen elections where the most catered to groups of voters, which are upper class and middle class, suburban, college educated mostly white but period kind of now it's just that demographic no matter what your color is um or your race is they are the most catered to group in political uh, in politics because think about it folks you have republicans who will never raise taxes on the middle class uh but they'll always cut taxes on the low uh, uh, the, 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 or they always cut taxes on the rich and take away 
spending on the poor and turn the middle class on the poor and say, look at them being greedy, trying to take those lazy people, trying to take your hard work, trying to take the success of your parents, of your hard earned money without letting you know that they're actually giving tax cuts to the rich that make it to where you pay more taxes than the top 1% in this country. They don't want to talk to you about that. That's what our generation faces. That's their, our reality, folks. We've gone through... Uh, oh, let me finish kind of where I was going with that whole electoral thing. <laughs> that group of people who has been catered to the most have elected some of the worst leadership based on BS, propaganda, and vagueness. And this goes to the Trump folks too, folks, because there's a lot of people that vote for Trump that are upper middle class white folks that feel like, oh, we should get rid of all of these things that are called progress and do what we want to call is making America great again. There was never an explanation of what making America great again was because, folks, let's be real. There has never been a time in this country where this country has been great for every single person that is within the borders of the United States of America. I can't even say citizens because us African-American folks were not considered citizens until about you know, a uh, hundred, so hundred. I think it was a solid about hundred and eighty, almost two hundred years before we saw uh, full rights in this country. And so, I say all that to say, I don't want to seem like uh, I don't want to seem like a, a grouchy, like complaining uh, millennial or 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 Gen X or, or excuse me, Gen Zer, which is really what I am. Um, but I do want to be real with you and saying, look, folks, we aren't on equal standing as our grandparents were, or excuse me, as those who had full rights in the 1950s and were able to experience the quote unquote American dream, the white picket fence, suburban dream, those people who believe that you can just go to college, get a great like 50K a year job or something, or be able to live well off of just 20K or so a year and be able to raise a family and be able to put them through college and all like all these things. The idea that you're able to have a fam uh, like a nuclear family in this country and be making like less than like $50,000 each at least a year I think it's uh and and the idea that you're going to be living comfortably at even 50,000 a year I think if you have 100k a year coming into a household you're living comfortably then if you have you know let's say two kids right or three kids and then two two parents or even two kids and two parents with $100,000 a year that's where you're able to I think live comfortably in this country where there's no economic distress Anywhere below that, though, there's there's some stressing at some point, just about. There's some stressing at some point. And so I say that to say, folks, the idea that 
the Reagan era of politics was this era that was brought in with Reagan in 1980 that believed in spending less in government on domestic affairs, spending more on foreign policy and on the military, and cutting taxes for the rich and believing that the money was going to trickle down from the rich, the money that they saved from taxes was going to go back to the middle class and to the low income people because they would invest into their workers or they they would increase wages they would add more benefits to the workers all of these were the theories of why reaganomics or trickle-down economics was the way that we need to go it has been the standard operating system of our economy for republicans and democrats since then it's time for a new era in american economics and american government we had the new deal era which was fun in my opinion, when it comes to the economy, because that's where you saw such a grow. Guess what, folks? This goes back to that 1950s dream that a lot of white Americans had and was able to live, were they able to go to, to the suburbs, have a great home, and have a great uh, you know, family. That was built off of the New Deal era. That was built off of massive government expansion, massive government spending. And all of it was for, often was for the benefit of the middle class and low-income Americans, not just corporations, even though they benefited greatly from it and, in turn, got greedy. And then in the 80s, that's when they elect Reagan, that's when they say, no, we got to convince the American people that all this New Deal spending was wrong and was being wasted on the poor and the, the minorities. Let's be real, that's where we were in the 1980s. And so we're going to elect this guy who said we're going to make America great again. And Reagan said that too. What did he mean by that? I don't think it was something that was 100% make America great again for everyone. Clearly wasn't with the drug policy he's put into place. Clearly wasn't with the trickle-down economics that destroyed the industrial heartland of this country. Sent so many jobs out of this country unreal 90s you have nafta bush brought that in clinton continued it and then once clinton did it and won elections and did so quote unquote well i, I put that in quotes because it was not really the actions of president clinton that led to the economic growth in the 90s it was the actions of corporate america and the advancements of the internet which was a revolution in the way that we operate as a society that's a massive way to, uh, to boom the economy have a digital revolution it wasn't something that had didn't you know it, it didn't happen uh through government policy it happened through innovation and through uh, years of both private and public investment to invest in a future that's better than the past we haven't done that in a long time and it's about time that we do it it's about time that we have a new era of politics and uh, I really hope that we see a return to uh, the mindset of let's spend more to have more in the future. Uh, because this idea that if we spend less, we'll have more in the future has not worked. And I do not think will. Folks, you have a great week. I apologize for not getting this episode out last week, which was my game plan. Uh, 
but been a little busy here in South Carolina trying to make a change happen in the state and uh, we'll see if we can do it but with that said folks let me stop rambling and let me end it it's been a great podcast Uh, Friday is the 100th day of the Biden administration we'll see if they actually uh, they actually follow through on uh, on some of the policy goals they have in the description of this episode you'll be able to see the remaining policy agenda of the poor people's campaign be sure to check that link out and uh, let's push our leaders to always be better folks we should never be satisfied have a good one